Wings for Breakfast is brought to you by GameTime, your new go-to app for the best deals on last-minute tickets. Did you know Red Wings ticket prices tend to drop right before the game starts? Well, GameTime tracks prices in real time from thousands of trusted sellers, then shows you all the best last-minute deals with prices up to 60% off. And, as a bonus, there are in-app panoramic seat view photos from every section. You can see exactly what you're going to be looking at in every direction from your seat at the, at the stadium. Uh, more than 12 million fans have downloaded the GameTime app already and discovered the fastest, easiest way to get into the game. for breakfast our twice weekly red wings podcast here on the athletic i am max boltman with me as always is prashant Iyer. it is sunday night in detroit and for the first time all weekend the red wings did not give up four goals it's a win right i mean it was it was seven against carolina four against florida so i think they'll take this one with giving up nothing so far today yeah i mean it's not a win it's it's nothing but Nothing is an improvement on everything else that happened for the Red Wings uh, this weekend. They lose back-to-back games against the Hurricanes, which you were at, and the Panthers by a combined score of 11-3, to was it? That's a rough weekend by uh, by any stretch, even for a rebuilder. Let's start earlier in the weekend because you were at that one. Uh, what did you see in, in that game? You know, surprisingly, I got through that first period and I said, Carolina looks uncharacteristically sloppy, and I think Detroit played a real solid road period. I mean, at the end of the first period, it was one-to-one. Detroit had looked pretty good. The shot clock wasn't necessarily miserable as it usually is. I remember a a few years back, I was at a Hurricanes-Red Wings game. I want to say maybe 2014 or 2015, and the shots at one point were like 30-6. to And I just remember, man, this is straight-up awful. I didn't actually feel that way through about the first 20 minutes or so. But then the second period started, and Carolina kept coming and coming and coming. And by the end of the second period, the score was well out of hand. And Detroit had kind of dropped off in their level of play, and they really weren't able to uh, do anything much in the way of getting back in the third period. You know, Anthony Mantha did everything he could to try and keep the wings close, but in the end, not enough against a really good Carolina team. Yeah, so I was at a, a charity event this night, Friday night, and and I left my house at the point in the game when the Red Wings were challenging for goaltender interference on Carolina's second goal. And when I was leaving, I was like, oh, they, I mean, they have an okay shot at this. I didn't, it definitely wasn't a slam dunk, but there was contact for sure. And so um, we show up at the bar and we walk in, and not only has the call stood, but it is now 3-1, and it didn't get any better from there uh, watching the game uh, where I was. So it's certainly a a tough way to live. You know, the, the, that's the thing with those challenges this year is if you get them wrong, there's a really good chance you're compounding uh, your misery. And that was absolutely the case in this one. I don't know that they really ever recovered from where I sat. But like you're saying, I mean, I think after the first period ended, uh, it was all Carolina. Yeah, I mean, it could have even been worse because right after. So Carolina, I think Detroit basically challenges they lose that 
challenge. So then they go on a two-minute penalty. Carolina scores on the penalty. And if my memory's in terms of the order of events is correct here, I think Carolina then scores shortly after that penalty. But that one, Detroit does challenge the and offside. wins. Yeah, wins on the offside. And so, that I mean, it could have been just a avalanche of goals in a short period of time. I mean, seven goals is still an avalanche of goals against. And, you know, for most of the second and third period, it was quite ugly um, for the Red Wings really across the board as I thought Carolina just kind of tilted the ice and kind of flexed their muscles a bit and just their talent dominated um, really over the second and third period. So overall, not a pleasant game to be at, but also not the worst Detroit-Carolina game I've been at in the last five years. Yeah, and it's interesting that I think you thought that the Carolina was sloppy in the first. I'm no, I don't necessarily disagree, but my big takeaway from the whole game was what a luxury it is for Carolina to be built the way they are with such great two-way defensemen. Like Dougie Hamilton, one of the best offensive defensemen in the league, but also Jacob Slavin, Jake Gardner, uh, Brett Pesci. Like they can just they can go so many minutes on such great defensemen. Um, that to me is is how the ice gets tilted so starkly because Carolina's D men can rush it up themselves. They can score the goals, they can assist the goals, but they're also not very easy to play against. And to me, um, you know. The Red Wings don't have that, but I think they're showing you kind of a, a model for how you can build a really good team, even without maybe that one true offensive megastar, although that probably sells Sebastian Ajo and maybe even Andrei Svechnikov a bit short. Yeah, I mean, and even probably Dougie Hamilton and Jacob Slavin short as well. I think they, they've really been the model over the last you know five-ish years on how a rebuild really should be constructed in terms of... Um, the way they bided their time, they kind of took flyers on different free agents and guys on the waiver wire. They made smart moves. They weren't afraid to jettison some of their older, more experienced veterans when needed. They weren't afraid to make uncomfortable trades. Um, and, you know, so they've kind of been that model. And I think it was it was nice, at least for Wings fans, if you step out of the actual outcome of the game to see what a what a rebuild can look like and how quickly it can turn because really as you know prior to last season there wasn't really a lot of expectations for Carolina coming into last year but what they really did is as soon as they won that lottery and by winning the lottery I mean getting the second overall pick with Andrei Svechnikov they put the pedal to the metal on the on the rebuild and that was the right time to accelerate and I think if you look forward to Detroit uh this coming draft season no they don't have a Jacob Slavin already in place no they don't have Sebastian Ajo in place and no you know Stan Bowman's not there to give up Tevo Teravainen for really nothing but there's still a couple of good pieces on this team and if Detroit is fortunate enough to get the first or second overall pick and you get a guy like you know Alexi Lafreniere or Quentin Byfield maybe that is the right model to look at in terms of how do you accelerate from that point. I just think the way that they're built from that blue line makes everything work because yeah, like like you you're like you're talking about they have really good offensive defensive, but they're also not just offensive players. And to me, like I don't know. I, I just like so much about the way Carolina plays, so much about the way they're built. Uh, I know like every person with a Twitter account does, but but you can count me among them because they're they're just so impressive. Um moving on to the next night though, I think where where there were a couple of bright spots at least in the in the Carolina game for Detroit talking about the first period talking about Anthony Mantha uh I don't know that there was a single one against the Florida Panthers I mean I think they won the first shift and after that it was like wire to wire 
the, the Panthers just dominated. They took a quick penalty. I think it was Tyler Bertuzzi on a high stick. They score like right as the uh, penalty expires, and then it was all downhill from there. I didn't think the Red Wings had had much of anything on that night, which is a whole lot more concerning than just you know losing to a team like Carolina because Florida's good. Uh, but Florida was not necessarily like the main issue in this one. I think a lot of it was self-inflicted by Detroit. Yeah, I mean, you're absolutely right. I think there is maybe I could point to a handful of shifts that Detroit actually won, and that's how you basically had to count the positives from that game. I mean, yes, it's the second night of a back-to-back, but, I mean, Detroit had injected some fresh defensemen, so Mike Green sat because he was sick. Um, Joe Hicketts came out, Dennis Cholowski came back in, Alex Biega came back in, forward units relatively young, and, I mean, they just got steamrolled by a team that is good but not great, a team that really shouldn't do that to you, a team that had Sergei Bobrovsky with a 3.8 goals against average coming in, and you barely put anything on the net that looked dangerous. I mean, if you're looking at the game, that scoreline should have been far worse. I mean, Jonathan Bernier, I thought, was actually really good. Um, to a certain extent, like I, I thought he was a large reason why the score wasn't six or seven nothing. There were a handful of great opportunities that the Panthers had in the second and in the third to really extend that lead. And you know, I, I think if you're thinking over the last three years, this is right up there with the Sabers game at the end to close out the regular season last year, where the Wings got rolled seven one. This is right up there with that game in terms of one of the worst I have ever seen the Wings play. It's weird because the, like the score line doesn't say that like four zero, but it's like it's almost the opposite of of what I've thought in a lot of other Red Wings games this season where they've lost maybe five to two or even like five to one, um, and I haven't thought that they got buried like that. I thought you know okay they had you know a stretch of seven or eight minutes where it was really bad and everything else they kind of held held their own, but the final score line doesn't reflect that. This is the opposite. Like the, the score line says it was four zero. By no means is that holding your own. But like you said, this could have been 6-0, this could have been 7-0, and I wouldn't have batted an eye. And that, I think, is a real problem, because while everyone expects the Red Wings to lose games this year and, and lose a lot of them, I don't think anyone expects them to be losing uh, as badly as they are right now. I mean, the, the stat that I tweeted the other night, they had 11 losses last season by three or more goals. It is November 3rd. They already have seven of them. How big a problem is this? I mean, that's the thing that you're looking for is you know this team isn't a very good team. You're not expecting them to go out and contend for a playoff spot. But I think the bare minimum requirement is at least a, a peer competitive. And so you're sitting at 4-10-1, I believe, is their record now through 15 games. So you're approaching almost a fifth of the season or 20% of the season being done. And you're saying in half of those games – you weren't even close. I mean, you lost by three or more goals. You know, the point you bring up about last season only having 11 such games is really notable. I think if you track them back over the last 30 years, there's only been one time they've had more than 16 losses in a season by three or more goals, and that's back in 90-91 when they had 23. I mean, the team record is 33, and to me that legitimately seems like it's in play with the way they've been going right now. Um, They're giving up 3.8 goals per game, which is the third worst in the league. They're scoring only 2.2 goals per game, which is the worst in the league. And so there's a lot of problems here where the Wings just simply are not competitive in a lot of the hockey games, at least by the scoreline. I think, you know, you and I have stated this, that probably they've been a little unlucky in 
some of their games. But uh, interestingly, one of the things we've talked about is that expected goals for percentage. And we've made note on this podcast about how that metric has been a little muddied by the fact that the NHL wasn't correctly labeling shot locations. Um, But since October 16th, that problem has been remedied. And if you just look at the contrast to see how much the Wings were potentially affected, uh, prior to October 16th, they had an expected goals for percentage of 51%, which is really good. You're looking to be north of 50% as a good team. Um, But since that time, they're actually coming in at 45.7%, which is 26th in that time span. And so that seems to be a lot more indicative, and maybe they're not as unlucky as I've thought, and maybe they really are just getting some of that uh, that coming back based on the quality that they're allowing against. But there's so many problems right now, and I don't even know where to start to fix them. Yeah, and we should couch all this by saying, like, you know, for all the stats, on the you know, final score obviously is an important stat because it comes down to wins and losses, which are really the only thing that, that truly, truly matter descriptively. Final scores can be misleading. Empty netters are in play. All that, all those important caveats probably worth noting. Um, but yeah, like you said, I don't think since the middle of October, um, the Red Wings can really claim to be uh, on net, you know, making making progress. And I think that's the troubling thing about this is that it's not it's not so much you know the number of losses we expected those. And and again, I think in a lot of the losses they were better than the final score indicates, but. Right now, it's not trending the right way, and I think that's probably the scary thing about it because you have so many, you know, granted, your prospects really aren't here in Detroit yet, but you have so many of your young guys who you expect to be your catalysts into the next phase of the rebuild. They are leading the team. In some ways, is it a little bit uh, probably problematic that they're not, don't seem to be ready to do it every night? Maybe that's part of it, Uh, but on a bigger level, you just don't want this to compound because, like, I played on extremely, extremely bad hockey teams before, right? My high school hockey team literally never won a game. So two seasons, 60 straight losses. I promise you, every single season, lost 24, lost 25 is way worse than lost number one. And it gets way harder and progressively harder to dig yourself out of it. That's where this becomes a problem. You cannot let this spiral like this. Uh, because it will get harder to dig yourself out of. And I don't know what the solution is. Like, I don't know that there's an obvious thing that you can say, oh, they fixed this, things will get better. Um, but it, it's, <laughs> so maybe this is sort of just uh, directionless alarm sounding, but it, it, it was bad. And I think when Nashville comes to town Monday, they need to have a, a yeoman's effort in order to uh, to start turning this around. You saw it last time they came home and they, they played that game against Buffalo thought they played pretty well and they just lost two to zero um maybe that you know they got them back on track to win that game against Edmonton but I don't think you can have these 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 streaks keep going on this long without it having a real detrimental effect on on your top young players and really the guys who you're going to be looking to one of the things I did want to focus on though from the weekend specifically was Brendan Perlini's debut he got two games he's pretty much on the third line for both of them with uh and Franz Nielsen what did you see out of Brendan yeah, watching Brendan, I mean, he's going to be another one of those young guys, 23-year-old, that is hopefully, or at least in the minds of uh, the management, potentially a, a long-term piece. He's almost getting a year tryout. So, you know, he slotted in on the third line, playing primarily with Hiroshi and Nielsen. Uh, in the Carolina game, I didn't necessarily notice him, but kind of reviewing the, the stat sheet, 
he did manage to have a, a solid game. He put up three shots on goal, seemed to be a little bit more active, got about 11 minutes of ice time at five on five, and seemed to have, you know, do decently well relative to the rest of his teammates. And I think in Florida, you know, everyone got steamrolled in that game. No one looked particularly good. I mean, even Larkin and Mantha, I thought were particularly, those were probably their worst games of the season. Mantha in particular having that bad turnover. So I don't think he necessarily stuck out in a bad way. Um, You know, when I watch him skate out there, he does, honestly, I confuse him at times with Mantha just by the size of the guy. Uh, He is a really big guy, seems to move pretty well. And positionally, I mean, I didn't necessarily pick up on him consistently being in the wrong spot. It's only two games, so we'll have to see a little bit more. But I think what the Wings are hoping for is he can inject a little bit more of that offensive mindset onto that third line because, you know, really the big problem that we've talked about is there's no one scoring outside of the Wings' top guys. Uh, Thus far hasn't been seen, but hopefully more to come in that regard. I think you just have to stick with it for a little bit. Um, and see what develops out of there because he is completely new to the organization. He needs probably a little bit of time to build some chemistry with Hiroshi and Nielsen. Yeah, and two really tough games to judge someone off of just team-wise. Like you said, if nobody was really having it working, it's it's probably pretty tough to expect the new guy who's still learning the systems to be the one who really stands out. I didn't think he stood out much. You know, he had a couple of, of rushes where he did show his speed. I think that's probably the encouraging thing you're looking for. Um, so I didn't see really much of anything though, either direction. I'm probably need to, to weigh in big picture about him, but I, I do think it's the kind of thing that y- you should be watching him pretty closely to see what he can generate. I, we did get a question that maybe we'll get into later in the show about kind of him and, and what's the ideal deployment for him. It's a tricky question as I, maybe I'll just, let's just get into it now. People want to see him with Larkin and they want to see him with Larkin and Bertuzzi because of kind of probably what you're saying about Maybe some similarities with Mansa as that Manta as that big scorer. Um, I get that reasoning, but I also think you know when you're on a guy who's on his third team in a year, you have to recognize that he's probably not the kind of person or the kind of player that um, it, it's not going to be instant plug and play. I guess is what I'm saying. So I know they want to make him earn it, and and that's something that's worth doing with your top line. You don't just want to hand out those kind of minutes, and especially those kind of matchups. You know the kind of matchups the Larkin line gets. Um, you don't just want to stick a guy there before he's really proven, you know, he, he deserves it. Uh, but it is something where I think at some point, I mean, I certainly would like to see what he looks like alongside other like uh, kind of play drivers who can help get him the puck a little bit. Um, Tara Hirose's a playmaker, but I don't know if he's proven to be a driver yet this season. So uh, I don't know what you think about that or his deployment. My instinct would be to say, I don't think you put him on the top line just to do it. I don't think that sends a great message to, the guys you've had in your room, literally every player in that room looks better next to Dylan Larkin. So it doesn't really say much to me to say he'd be better with Larkin because of course he would. Uh, but I don't know where you fall on that. I think honestly where I fall is, can it be any worse? <laughs> I mean, where we're at right now is we just saw the wings get absolutely shellacked. I mean, like I said, I think it's one of the five worst games I've seen him play in the last three or four years, right up there with that Buffalo game last year. At this point, I mean, I th- I don't think you have really any play drivers besides Larkin and Mantha. And so the natural thing that we talked about earlier in the season was we'll split those two guys up because those are two guys that can actually generate and drive a line. And so for me, it's kind of interchangeable as to who you stick with those guys. 
so long as those guys are kind of driving their own lines. And I think both of them have done it to a certain degree. Um, I have no problem putting Perlini up there with Larkin and Bertuzzi. I have no problem sticking Perlini with Athanasiu and Mantha. Um, I think it's where do you think you're going to maximize his skill set and talent? Because I do think there is something to the thought of how certain lines are instructed to play. And I think this is something that really hasn't been captured well with the analytical data in the sense that are certain lines instructed to play dump and chase more, carry in more, play with the puck more? Are there are there different assignments for those lines? I don't know that Perlini is necessarily a guy that who maybe was drafted as a skilled player, first round pick, you know, was a decent scorer in juniors. I don't know if you can necessarily take him and stick him on a checking line and ask him to still have offensive production based on what the role or assignment is for that particular line. So for me, why not give him a shot, see if you can maximize his skill set. At the very worst, you're getting an assessment of what maybe his maximal performance looks like because he is a 23-year-old and he's a restricted free agent and you do ultimately want to decide at the end of the year, is this a guy I want to hang on to or is this a guy that I don't necessarily think needs to be a part of the future in terms of contract negotiation. And so I'd rather see what the maximal performance you can get out of him is. And if that is sticking him with Larkin, great, because honestly, it's pretty much interchangeable outside of those guys. I, I really strongly disagree. We haven't disagreed a whole lot since, since we started this show, but this is, this is an area I'll disagree on because number one, he's not on a checking line. He's with Taro Hirose. Like that's not a checking line. No matter, no matter where you're slotting it on the, on the scorecard, a, a line that has kind of a five ten playmaker and Franz Nielsen is, is not necessarily your checking line. I know Nielsen's kind of had a defensive identity, but I just, I think Larkin's line is more of a checking line when you consider who they're going up against, right? Like that's the line that goes against other teams, top players. Um, I know they're going to be better offensively than, than the third line is, but I, to me, when you talk about like the one of the one of the the fears that people have in a losing streak like streak like this is that the locker room is gonna um, the coach is gonna lose the locker room or something, right? To me, the way that you lose the locker room is you have all these guys who you spent years, Athanasiu, Mantha, kind of like selectively disciplining and coaching to show like this is what it takes to be on the top line. You know, take their minutes and and you know and and the output you hope to get is exactly where they are now, right? Which is where they're your top six. They're going pretty hard. And I don't think you can really question the effort of either of those two guys. Maybe else, I mean, I don't think you can really do it in the Florida game. I just don't think they played that well. Like for the first part of the season, the effort's been there, right? And now all of a sudden, a new guy comes in, and you're going to elevate him over them just because you want to see what he's got. Like where would where would that thinking have been when they were coming up? And to me, I think that if you if you elevate a guy just because you want to see. Uh, if he might look better on the first line, that would not sit well with me as a teammate for sure. So um, I don't know. I get what you're saying that nothing's working, and at the end of the day, you got to see what works. I know you want to get your your viewing in of him before you have to kind of you know get down to brass tacks and restricted free agency. I just don't think I would, as a coach, want to to make that decision to elevate a guy. And I'm not a coach, so who knows? But like to elevate a guy. Uh, under those circumstances, I think you got you have to make them show like, hey, I'm worthy of playing on on your best line. Because again, every single guy in that room, Justin Abdicator, Valtteri Filippola, Darren Helm, Luke Lindenning, I promise they all look better next to Don Larkin. They all will. So to me, it's it'd just be a tough sell. I don't know. 
Yeah, I mean, I, I think it's a valid point that you're you're bringing up. I think the big difference for me between the guys you kind of rattled off, and obviously, yes, there's Athanasiu and Mantha um, who came up, but I think the big difference for me is Perlini is 23, and a lot of those other guys are not. They're far older. They're on the other end of their career. I know Mantha and, and Athanasiu, Athanasiu in particular, I think, had to really pay his dues yeah. to come up through the lineup. Mantha, on the other hand, I know when he first came up, he wasn't necessarily handed top line minutes, but the guy was given top six minutes pretty pretty early on in his career. And I, it's kind of a little bit of a, of a double-edged sword or maybe a, uh, I'm not sure the right way to phrase this, but you always hear the coaching staff say, we're, when we bring these young guys up, we want them to be playing in the top six. because And they're saying this about Svechnikov, so if we pull him in that example, mm-hmm. we want them in top six minutes. And so if he he's not going to benefit from playing six to ten minutes in the bottom three in the or the bottom six part of the lineup. And so to me, it's like, okay, that makes sense. But then at some point, you have to give them top six minutes. Perlini's not a he's not a rookie. He's not a young guy who's been around. Sure, he's new to the team, but the guy's played two hundred games. I mean, he's been in the league since two thousand and fourteen or two thousand fifteen. Uh, I mean, he was drafted right before Larkin, and so. I don't know that necessarily the same logic applies in his specific instance. Um, given, I mean, he's probably got more career goals than half that lineup does in the bottom half. So I, I'm not necessarily opposed. And I think at the end of the day, you need to know what you have on your team. And to me, the biggest issue in a locker room is when you consistently lose by three or more goals. To me, that would frustrate me more than anything, and I'd be willing to try just about anything at that point. No, it's fair. and I, I just think you have to wait for him to have a game where we're sitting here not just saying he didn't seem to be, he didn't seem to mess up a whole lot. Like, I think I think you want to have a game where it's like, hey, Perlini looked pretty good. Uh, maybe give him a look up on the top line. You know what I mean? Like, it doesn't have to be a sustained, you know. You're just saying from an optics standpoint. Yeah, for, for the rest of your team. You know what I mean? Like, I, I think, because I, I get what you're saying about the other guys are, are you know, 33, 34, and they're not going to be here when it comes out. There's validity in that from our standpoint, where we're sitting here, you know, analyzing the importance. And I, truth be told, I can't say that I wouldn't be uh, that I wouldn't be knocking it if it was like, oh, they're giving you know this guy minutes over this guy. Uh, sorry, like veteran player over young guy, and, and, it, and it was February, and he's been on the team for this long. Um, but I think if you're telling the if you're sending the message to these older guys, we really don't care how anybody's playing. We just want to see the young guys. Like, why should the why should the veterans keep showing up for you on the ice? Like, why should they keep competing? And I know that there will be people who say, well, they're not the best players anyway, and that's true, and they're not getting the best minutes anyway. But like right now, the wingers above him are Mantha, Athanasiu, Bertuzzi. Unanimously, we all agree those guys deserve those minutes. And Darren Helms, who by most metrics has been one of their four best forwards. So. Either Darren Helm's going to have to start playing worse in order to get bumped off that line, or Polina's going to have to have a game that says, I deserve a look. And I, honestly, how I might do this, here's here's what I would do. I would put Athanasiu up on the first line. I might drop Helm to center on the second line, because he can play center, and I'd move Perlini up, so it's Helm, Perlini, Mantha. Um, if you're going to do it, that's how I would do it. But I don't think you can elevate him over any of those other wingers based on what's happened so far. You know what I mean? Yeah, I mean, I, I don't have a problem running that lineup that you said, because Honestly, at the end of the day, we're 15 games in and Athanasiu has zero goals. Somebody's mm. got to get him going. And if that is slotting him all the way up to the top and then from an optics standpoint, it's easier, it's easier to flip-flop Philpolo and Perlini, then that's fine by me. I mean, to me, the optics piece of it is, you know, when I sit back and look at it, these guys are all adults. 
I understand there's a little bit of the, you know, I had to work my way up, so-and-so had to work their way up. These guys are adults at the end of the day. I think they should be able to handle it. Hey, we think this guy's better, and he's going to be a long-term part of it. We want to see if he's going to be a long-term part of this team. Franz Nielsen's got three more years left on his contract. He's going to be a long-term part of this team. Philpola's got another year left. He's part of this team. He's been in the organization. So, to me, I think I would, you know, kind of rely on the maturity of the rest of the guys in in the decision here, but... You know, I get it. It's it's not clean optically. It's not clean from any standpoint. And there's really no guarantee that Perlini is any better. You know, when we, when this trade was first made, you and I kind of talked. I don't know that this moves the needle a whole lot, but it's at least interesting to see. Um, and so I think you do want to see what he looks like in a maximum state here if you're going to give him an opportunity to shine. And ultimately, that's what I want to do at the end of the day is before I pay this guy money in, in the offseason... I want to know what he can do maybe at his best. Uh, and that means I need to give him advantageous opportunities because even though we say Taro Hirose is a playmaker and Franz Nielsen's not necessarily the most offensively inept guy, neither guy has been particularly good this year. And I think probably Hirose is another guy that should be talked about. Why has he still got such a secure footing on his spot given the way his season's gone, but that's kind of a different conversation altogether. No, and I think, I think you make a, yeah, I think you make a good point. Like they are all pros and and I'm certainly not saying like never give this guy first line minutes. I'm just saying, you know, let's, let's see a good game from him first. But, uh, but you do make a good point. It's maybe with the way things are going, that, that point does need to come sooner than later. And maybe the bar for what it is deserves to be a little bit lower than it's been uh, for other guys to get put onto the top line in the past. I got no problem with that. I think that's that's pretty good reasoning. And uh, hat tip to Michael for the question, because we just got a lot of runtime out of that, a lot of mileage. I was going to say, it's probably the best uh, <laughs> best question we've had on the season in terms of uh, getting us to go back and forth with good dialogue. There, yeah, so. no kidding, no kidding. Let's zoom out, though, for a minute. Before we get back to more questions and talk just kind of overall state of the team, um, where is this headed? Like, is this something that you see... If it keeps up like this, what does that mean? Can you put it in any context for us? Like, what's what's the big picture state of the team right now? Yeah, I mean, we're, you know, I mentioned this earlier. We're sitting at 4-10-1 for the Red Wings record right now. That's through almost 20% of the season. So it's not an insignificant sample, but sure, a 15-game stretch can, can be hit or miss, you know, for a team throughout a year. I mean, look at the way St. Louis started last year. So you can certainly see that things can be different. Um, But as of right now, the Wings are on pace for 49 points on the season, which would be the third fewest in franchise history, or I should say since 1967 and 68, when there was actually enough games for this to be relevant. Um, You know, a lot of the times, as I'm doing a lot of these stat dives, I keep coming back to the 1985-1986 season where the Wings were absolutely god-awful. They recorded only 40 points the entire season they had 33 losses by three or more goals honestly looking at this statistically from the little data we have from 85 86 this is what the start looks like um, for those guys I mean that team was also the last team to lose eight consecutive games in regulation Detroit just narrowly avoided that going seven in regulation and one in overtime um And so there's a lot of parallels to that. And if you start digging into the underlying metrics, there's not really anything here that suggests it's going to be substantially better. I already pointed out the expected goals for percentage of 45.7%, which is 26th in the league uh, since October 16th. That's with the fixed data. Their power play is currently operating at a 
or they're converting at 4.84 goals per 60 minutes, which is 26. Their penalty kill allows a little over 11 goals per 60 minutes. That's 28th. I mean, across the board, all of the metrics scream a bottom five team. And I think you're just seeing it really, really play out. Yeah, I I got no no uh, <laughs> no real meaningful response to all that. I think it just contextualizes how rough it's been. And I think, you know, in the preseason, I predicted them to finish the exact same number of final standings points that they did last year. I predicted them to finish, I think, bottom three in the league. Like, in some ways, I think people just don't always understand what that looks like in practice. And I think, like, this is what bottom three looks like in practice. Red Wings fans pretty much do know that because they lived it the last, you know, last year until that end of your winning streak and 74 points maybe that's maybe that's optimistic at this point uh based on the current pace but I, I think it's just it's really you're seeing two things number one what a team that's going to finish in the bottom three looks like night in and night out doesn't need to be quite this bad but but it certainly can be uh and what it looks like to lose a player like Gus Nyquist over a full season because you look at like where he would fit into all this like he's suddenly Suddenly, your top four wingers are Nyquist, Athanasiu, Mantha, and Bertuzzi, and you got Helm kind of maybe generating a little bit of a spark on the third line. It it feels like a small thing. Like, it feels like, okay, that's one guy. But when you see kind of the ripples of it, you can really see where there's value in, in a player like that who you know is, you know, he's kind of steeled a little bit mentally. He's been through the wars. Um, he, he's done this for, for almost a decade, I guess, or not maybe not quite that long, but, you know, seven, six, seven years. Um, I think you're you're seeing that loss. You're probably seeing a little bit of the Cronwall absence here. Uh, maybe not so. Maybe not entirely on ice. Like I think there, maybe there's some locker room benefit to that. Although I do think the Red Wings still have a pretty good, pretty good leadership group in in their room. And, you know, I think Larkin's really coming into his own in that way. Especially in our dealings with him post game, he's he's really impressed me in that sense. But but by and large, I think you are seeing those absences more than maybe maybe I expected you would have. Um, so far. And, and I wonder, does that ever change? Like, is that something that you can, you can work through or, or does that have to wait until you can realistically, you know, whether it's just time and age or until there's an addition or, or what? Cause I think, I think you're seeing it right now. Yeah. I mean, I think you're absolutely right. I, I think it is going to be a little bit of having to wait it out. And I think that's been the case for the last handful of years where you're waiting for a lot of these long-term contracts that have been handed out to start falling off or get traded away. I mean, to kind of illustrate just where the wings are at, this is a this is a fun stat here. If they were to match their point total from last season, they would have to effectively play 500 the rest of the way because they've got 67 games left and need 65 points to match their point total from last season. And so that is effectively 500 hockey for the rest of the way, if you're talking about winning every other game, which is unbelievable to say that they would need to do that just to be as bad as last year. Um, So that's kind of where the wings are at through the first 15 games. That's kind of the hole they've dug themselves in is, you know, just to even get to 74 points from last year, you need 65 points in 67 games, which is almost 500. Um, So this is been a really rough start yeah and i'm sure there's people out there listening who are wondering why we haven't brought up uh jeff blashell the coaching situation yet i promise we'll get to it it was the vast majority of our listener questions we've kind of distilled it down into one 
um, that I think we can we can get everywhere we need to off that. So we're not avoiding it. We're just going to get to it later in the show so we can get to it all at once. Um, the one thing I think we should get to, though, before we go to the listener questions is what's going on down in Grand Rapids. I think they lost both their games this weekend. And also we should say we want to extend our condolences to the family of Bill Leroy who passed away this weekend. I did get to meet Bill when I was in Grand Rapids last year. And uh, really, really sorry for the whole Grand Rapids family and to Bill's family um, that he passed away. That's it's very sad, and um, we should we should preface all of our Grand Rapids stuff with that today. But um, on the ice, the Griffins lost both their games. Phillips Adina had a point streak rolling, and then it went away. He was up to four. Moritz Sider, I believe, is up to four game point streak, and he's got six and eleven now, I think, total, which is pretty good. Um, what have you kind of observed from afar in Grand Rapids, and uh, what what are you paying attention to? Yeah, I mean, I think if we're going to talk about a couple of positives, I think at the very least it's Zadina and Sider have been able to put some points on the board in the last handful of games. Zadina's point streak was snapped against the Manitoba Moose uh, on Sunday. He was able to get a goal on Saturday, but wasn't able to follow it up on Sunday. Sider, I think, has been the more impressive of the players to me, probably the most impressive player to me, and I think this is going to, uh, probably bring up an interesting topic for us at some point, potentially even right now. Um, six points in 11 games. I mentioned, in, I think, in our season opening podcast or maybe set some other point in time that as an 18-year-old defenseman in the AHL, that's a rare thing. Only a handful have done it really in recent years. You've had Rasmus Sandin and Timothy Logren with the Leafs. Um, you know, the AHL record for points by an 18 or younger defenseman is 33. Sider's got 6-11, and 11, and if he stays in Green Rapids for a large chunk of the season, I think he'll legitimately threaten that, um, if not surpass that with the way he's looked on the power play, moving the puck. Had a great setup. I think you pointed this out, Max, um, to Zadina on the power play in Saturday's game against the Moose. I think he looks really fluid, and I think at some point, Detroit is going to have to bite the bullet and make the decision, do you burn a year of his entry league contract um, and call him up for greater than nine games, or do you let him completely ride out the season with the intent to slide that deal? Um, I think it's an interesting question. Yeah, I do feel kind of compelled. I watched uh, both of these games, so um, both of the assists today, I don't, like, he got points for both of them, but one was a secondary assist, and one was, like, he made a pass in his own zone. Chris Terry took it end-to-end, did a bunch of whirling and twirling, and then scored it. Like, that feels like it's important to say like this was not this is not the emergence of like elite playmaker Moritz Sider um <laughs> although the one to the end of the other night was a nice setup and that was a good feed uh and, and they're really that whole tic-tac-toe that they the Griffins had rolling there was a, a good sight from their power play uh as a whole uh, I don't think Moritz Sider looks looked uh, as ready as he did when I went to Grand Rapids last time but that's just watching over video and and video I do think I don't know if people always give enough credit for how different things can look on video versus in person um so I don't know I don't want to want to get too in depth on that but I thought uh I actually you know from you know with that caveat I thought Zadina had maybe even a better game today when he didn't score than uh yesterday Saturday when when he did I thought he had a couple of a pretty nice plays one Valeno had him set up perfectly for what was going to be a no doubt goal 
but it went off a, a skate of a Manitoba player. Um, would have been an easy one for, for Zadina. And then he also had a rush that Cider set him up on, um, I think it was Cider. I don't know for sure. Uh, he, he took a rush up. I think it might have been on the power play, but I don't remember for sure. And uh, had, a, had a nice look. He made a nice move with the blue line to gain the entry. Got a got an okay look on net, but then took a hard tumble into the boards and was off the ice for a few minutes. I thought he played even better today, but but um, again, like who knows? It's it's video. But those are the, probably the two big positives. Giovanni Smith, I think, had a nice assist Saturday. I can't remember if that's Saturday or their midweek game that I saw. Um, that was a really nice play, pretty skilled play. So uh, a few positives. I don't I don't think the the answer is in Grand Rapids right now. Like there's a guy that if they call him up, he'll give them the spark they need right now. But I think the encouraging thing is you're definitely seeing progress, and especially in Phillips Adina. Um, and, and in more cider too, I think like, you know, that's, that's the positive here is that I think you, you can tangibly point to, to some progress. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that at the end of the day, that's all you're really looking for here. Um, you know, we'll continue to watch down in Grand Rapids and see how these guys develop, but at least some positives as for Red Wings fans, as you endure, um, this season thus far. Yeah. Let's go to the, uh, listener questions then. Yeah, let's do it. All right, so the first one is from Brandon, and I think I think he's right when he says, I think it's been enough games to give a decent initial assessment of Steve Eiserman's off-season acquisitions and changes. That would be Philpola, Nemeth, Ernie. What do we think so far? This is a really interesting question because I think at the time of the Nemeth and Philpola signings, those two in particular, you know, my initial reaction is I have no idea what Steve Eiserman is doing with these. Um, is he simply just trying to buy time because he has he spent a lot of time kind of assessing where Zadina, Valeno, Smith, Svechnikov were and said, you know what, I know at least with Philpola, they're probably one to two years away, and therefore I'll put Philpola, uh, or I'll give Philpola a two year deal and we'll kind of go from there. Um, and then the same thing with Patrick Nemeth, you, you know, the natural thought over the offseason was. All right, how are you going to fix this logjam? Because you've got Chalowski, you've got Ronick, you wanted to bring over Lindstrom, you drafted Moritz Sider, and he's going to play in the AHL. You've still got Vili Sariyarvi, you still have to figure out what to do with Joe Hicketts. Um, and so then to go and add another defenseman in that logjam, it goes, huh, this still doesn't really make sense. I think stepping back and evaluating them, Philpola is exactly what I thought Philpola would be. Uh, he was kind of a below replacement player. Below, below replacement level player, if you will, kind of over the last couple of seasons. Um, so, you know, I wasn't really expecting him to come in and, and be the Valtteri Philpola that, you know, scored 50, 60 points uh, with Detroit when they were winning Stanley Cups. Uh, this was going to be a guy who was a kind of a shell of his former self who could at least provide some sort of veteran presence and maybe, maybe a little bit of offensive playmaking, although... You know, I still haven't seen him actually take an intentional shot yet. I don't know if he's been credited with one. Probably had to get credited one for the goal, um, even though that was a pass. But, you know, he, he hasn't looked particularly good. In fact, I think he's probably been one of Detroit's two or three worst forwards on the season. But again, I don't I don't really know the intent behind it. I think seeing where Zadina and Valeno are right now, I think I'm probably fine with Filippo being here this year. I do wonder if it may be an issue next season. Nemeth, on the other hand, I think has been a lot better than anticipated. I think he's arguably arguably been Detroit's second best defenseman behind Philip Ronick, um, without Danny Dekaiser in the lineup, I should say. Um, so he's been exciting, but again, you just have to wonder how many guys are sitting in the AHL 
right now that you probably wanted to get a closer look at that you can't because of the the log jam yep i think mostly on the same page i i mean i thought nemeth was a made sense at the time i think i wrote like you know he he fills one of their big big needs which is they need to clear out the front of the net and they were giving up way too many chances at the front of the net oddly enough well i do think nemeth has been about what i expected in that degree and has shown you know he he's clearly crucial to what they're trying to do defensively i don't know how much better they've really gotten at the front of the net right like especially um on on the penalty kill you know they've gotten they've gotten burned a lot and so um although some of those are point shots and tips i suppose but uh yeah like you know i think he's he's important to what they do and maybe more important even next year when they're going to have a bunch of guys come off the books and like being able to comfortably pencil him in in the top four probably adds some security from from having to worry too much about a blue line that was just not going to be at all ready next year um so that's useful and then philpel i think you know, like f- he's fine. Like it's, it's, he's exactly what you said. He's exactly what you thought he would be. If anything, it probably just serves to kind of highlight um, moments like this one that the Red Wings are in right now, where it's like, how does it get better? Well, you know, I don't know that it does. I don't know that it does until those guys are ready to take over and, and take the second line center spot. Um, eat at Arby's, you know, like that's kind of the, <laughs> the deal right now. And it's nothing, you know, it's nothing. It's, it's interesting because it's not Valtteri Filippo's fault. Like he, you know, he's in second line center duty at age like what, like thirty three, thirty four, something like that. Like yeah, it's not, exactly. That's not fair to expect, but that's what the situation is, and I think uh, that's that's just the reality of the of, of how tough a spot they're in. So I think, yeah, I think that's about right. If we want to add Ernie into there, I think Ernie's maybe been a little bit less uh, offensive than I was expecting. I think w- with maybe a little bit more um, opportunity, I thought he might show a little more i think i saw someone on the internet make the comparison to kind of like a, a darren helm ish player i actually don't think that's that far off but um you know darren helm obviously is, is the original darren helm you know and he's he's had uh he's he's older and i think he's still been more effective so i don't i still think the ernie deal was a good call like fourth round pick for him and i think he's he'll probably make that pay off your, your expected number of nhl games out of a fourth round pick can't be much more than adam ernie's already played for the red wings so He's young, like you, you control him. I think it was a fine move. I think it was a good move, um, but I don't know that that it's fair to really expect a ton um, out of him. I don't know what you think about Ernie before we uh, we move on to to Ruth. Yeah, I mean, I, I completely agree with that. I think I was probably a little less bullish on Ernie, um, just because when you looked at his isolates um, and looked at kind of his performance in in Tampa. It didn't really scream a guy that did a lot, you know, generated a lot of offense or, you know, anything like that. In fact, you know, one of the fascinating things is if you go to Hockey Viz, which is Michael Blake McCurdy's, um, you know, uh, his website, and you look at awesome Adam Ernie's, website. yeah, and you look at Adam Ernie's stats um, for what the wings look like with Ernie on the ice. Uh, so one of the things Micah does is he calculates this threat metric, which is basically how fast would a team score. Based, you know, that had average shooting against an average goaltender based on the shot locations that happen with that specific player on the ice. With Adam Ernie, you would expect the Red Wings to score 51% slower than average with Ernie on the ice. And that's actually probably the largest negative offensive threat I think I've ever seen. Um, now, granted, it's a very small sample size here to, that, that you're dealing with, and that's probably why that is the way that it is. But he wasn't ever going to be billed to be that. I think exactly what you said, Max. I don't even think he's Darren Helm. I think Darren Helm, even when he was very young, showed far more flashes of yeah, offense. Yeah, right. He's faster. Yeah. You know, he's much faster. He was basically, 
you know, to me, the more natural comparison is he's Andreas Athanasiu with hand, like without hands, was Darren Helm. To me, it's 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 uh, Adam Ernie. I don't really have a a good person to necessarily compare to. He just seems almost like a Franz Nielsen with far less offensive upside in the way he's able to impact the defensive part of the game, which has remained consistent this season. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's it's a fourth round pick. I wasn't super, you know, burned up about that deal just because again, it's another twenty three year old, twenty four year old guy that you're bringing in taking a flyer on, seeing what he looks like, but it's a low low commitment, if you will. Yeah, and uh, to be clear, I don't think he's, like, as good as Darren Helm necessarily, but just in that kind of mold of, like, you know, his his MO is he's going to be, and he's done this, right? He's won some pucks back behind the net and in the corners for you. Um, but, you know, maybe counting on him to be the guy who finishes those plays or, or sets up the the backdoor goal. Uh, I don't know. I don't know if that's what I was expecting or what, but it's not, that hasn't been the case so far, and I don't think it's, I don't think it will be, so... That's kind of where I'm at on that. Um, moving along here. Ruth wants to know, players clicked during the Edmonton matchup, but seemed out of sync against the Hurricanes. To what do you attribute the inconsistency of play this season? To me, I think that answer is just that's, you know, you're a team driven by guys 25 and under, and that that will happen. Like, I think, I think the Red Wings' young core is more consistent. I think they're making progress in that, in that uh, department, but I... I don't think it will be a situation where where they're going to have an 82 game every night on season. Um, I don't know that they're going to have a 75 game every night on season. I think you're hoping they get across kind of that 70 mark this year, and that's that's progress. I don't know exactly what I would say they were at last year. I don't, it's not something I keep a, a hard count of, but that's my guess. Is like when the guys who are driving the bus are still aren't aren't like you know totally at their peak prime or whatever. And I don't know, age-wise, maybe you could say a couple of them ought to be, but I don't necessarily think anyone is at their absolute peak as a player. Um, and at the very least, consistency-wise, that that seems to get better with age anyway, to a certain point, and then there's diminishing returns. But to me, that's the answer, is you're, you're a team driven by young guys. This is going to happen when you're a team driven by young guys. Yeah, I mean, for me, it's it's relatively similar answer. It's, it's talent and the lack thereof, I think, you know, just at the end of the day, this is a team that has a bottom five, you know, depth of talent on the roster, and they're not going to be able to consistently elevate their game to compete with the other teams in this league um, on a night in and night out basis. And so I think that's all you're seeing really is just on a, any given night where they don't have their 100% effort. Uh, they are not going to be competitive. And I think the problem right now is you're getting too many nights where it's like 50% effort or 60% effort. Um, and it's not really effort. Maybe the better word is 60% of their talent potential. Um, and that's why you're seeing them get blown out. Yep. yep. I think that's that's a fair point to make. Uh, Jay asks, how should the Red Wings approach goaltending during the rebuild? If the rebuild gets accelerated by getting a lottery pick, do you make a move like Toronto did with Anderson? Or do you stop gap until Larson is ready? I assume when he says make a move like Toronto did with Anderson, he means like uh, what? What is he? What do you think he means there? Like they drafted Anderson in the third round, so I don't think he's, he necessarily means draft. Is it just kind of a speed of of acceleration thing? What's I don't. I guess I don't really know how to interpret that question in that section. But big picture goaltending during the rebuild. Um, I don't. You know, I don't know a whole lot about kind of Philip Larson's. Um, I, when I went to see him last year, he had probably his worst game of the year. So I threw that one from my memory banks. I haven't seen him in person yet this year. I didn't think he looked 
great or awful on on video today when I watched him. Um, but I, so I guess where I'm going with all of that is, I don't think this is a guy where you're putting all of your eggs in that basket, especially when you consider the history with the groin injury. Uh, I don't know what the cutoff is, and I probably will would would change that over the course of the next six months of where I would say it's worth taking Askarov. But that there is a point that I would say absolutely you take Askarov. It's probably it's probably not that low. Yeah, I mean, for me, so I think what the the question is getting at is so uh, so Frederick Anderson's originally drafted by the Ducks, and so back in two thousand and I believe it was fifteen or fourteen, the Leafs dealt a first and a second, if my memory serves me right, for Frederick Anderson, and then signed him to a five year deal worth twenty five million. So they committed a fair chunk of money to him, and so I think what the crux of the question is getting at is. Do you go for the high dollar goaltender that has that's potentially the elite goaltender versus the stopgap until your potential prospect that you have that could be an elite goaltender is ready? I see. Um, I think when I'm viewing the question, my inclination is I think goaltending is probably the most overvalued position in the league simply because the variance in skill between the best goaltenders and the worst goaltenders is not as high or is not as significant as the difference in skill between the high-end forward and the low-end forward and the difference in skill between the high-end defenseman and the low-end defenseman. Um, And so if you look at a lot of the teams that have made significant runs to the Stanley Cup finals over the last few years, really the last decade-plus, very few of those teams were built on, you know, high dollar goaltenders. Like you throw it all the way back to the wings and with Chris Osgood and then to a certain extent, Dominic Hoshik was there. You know, the Penguins did have Marc-Andre Fleury, but this was when he was on his uh, rook, or I believe he was on his second contract when he took the Penguins to their first cup final in 2009. You know, Jonathan Quick pre-massive contract was there for the Kings. You had really the only big dollar goalie that I think has made the cup finals if, uh, in my memory is Henrik Lundqvist. Um, but outside of that, I mean, you're talking about Pecorine pre big contract. A lot of the guys that make the, or those teams that make the cup finals that tend to be really loaded are teams that have kind of committed more of their cap towards their skaters and less of the cap towards the goaltenders and kind of optimized um, their goaltending simply based on plucking a goaltender that they're hoping can give them league average, if not slightly better than league average goaltending. I think a classic example of this is Carolina, who took a shot and missed with Scott Darling, but then hit with a tandem of Peter Morazic and um, Curtis McElhaney last year that takes them to the conference finals. And they were able to commit more of their money to their skaters. And now this season they're running back with, you know, James Reimer and Peter Morazic. And so that's kind of more the model I would, suggest the wings follow um while they're bridging kind of to philip larson but this is the interesting question with jimmy howard potentially being gone at the end of the year if not sooner um you know is calvin pickard jonathan bernier able to hold it down or are you going with somebody else that to add in from free agency i'm not sure but i'd kind of opt for that versus going after an aggressive uh elite goalie all rebuilding roads lead back to Carolina. Okay, and then we'll wrap up with this from friend of the show and pseudo-Swedish correspondent Lars, who keeps me very well informed 
on all the Red Wings prospects doings in Sweden. Shout out Lars. Uh, he says, so even if Jeff Blaschel has very little to work with as far as talent goes, is the lack of compete on him? Being bad is one thing, but not even looking like they're bothered to play is something else. How viable would firing him be and giving Biles Mo the rest of the season? Uh, how, how viable would that be? Why or why not? Um, I'll let you start on this one, and then I'll go second. This is a really tough question because it's very hard as a viewer to separate compete from lack of talent. Um, so can I say that the wings are not competing or is it simply they, the talent disparity is, is so great because I think either are plausible explanations. Now the Florida game, there was no compete and there was no talent. That was simply one of the worst games I've ever seen. And I do think there is a fair amount of blame to be placed on the coaching staff. Um, But at the same time, you're also remembering that the coaching staff hasn't been given a ton to work with really over the last few years. Um, You know, this is a it's a tough balance to say, is this a team that has some talent that's simply not living up to expectations or is this a team that is completely, you know, at the bottom of the league in terms of talent and is getting results consistent with being in the bottom of the league in talent. I'm not really sure how to separate it out. I will say at least tactically from what I understand about what Blaschel has tried to execute with respect to special teams and some of the even strength tactics. I don't necessarily agree that those are the most optimal for the players that he's got available. So an example of this is, Blaschel's teams have kind of tried to historically slow down the pace of play, um, relied a lot more on these short breakout passes as opposed to stretching it up the ice. I think this year you're seeing a little bit more stretching up the ice. But essentially what that does is it kind of shrinks the ice for the team and doesn't really let them use their team speed as much. You know, that's something I've written about and disagreed uh, with and then particularly power play and penalty kill tactics, which doesn't necessarily fall on Blaschel since he's not truly directing those units, but he does oversee them. Um, you know, I think tactically speaking, I have enough differences where I'd say it is reasonable to suggest that a fair amount of blame gets placed on him, but I just don't know what's reasonable from a compete level versus a talent disparity level to say one way versus another. As far as the angle for Bilesma, I think a lot of people are really enamored with Bilesma in Detroit simply because Dan Bilesma took a Pittsburgh team and had them beat the Red Wings in the Stanley Cup final. But, you know, Bilesma in Buffalo wasn't really that good of a coach. Um, his power play units haven't looked that good with the responsibilities that he's been tasked with. I'm not necessarily sure he's any sort of improvement other than being a different voice. Uh, for the team and so I think ultimately if you were to go in a different direction I don't think the answer is necessarily in your organization and I don't think Bilesma really offers you anything different than Blaschel would so I don't know that that you know making that change really does anything for you yeah I like I'm not trying to be mean I just I find the Bilesma thing absurd like on every level the things that you don't like about this team and I'm speaking to that of just like, you know, the the general person would, would see and, and think was not good about the team. One of the big ones is the power play. That's his era. 
if you're going to fire the coach, why would you then hand the reins to the guy who's in charge of one of the worst parts of the team? And if if the issue here, like, I think you and I have kind of come down to the Blashell thing on, just to distill it down to, like, one sentence, is, like, we don't necessarily think he's the problem, but, like, the the, the important question is, is he the solution? I know that the solution, if you fire him, is not then to just give it to, like, the guy right next to him. Because, like, what's really going to change there? I don't think... I don't... I find it absurd. Like, I just don't... I don't see the, the logic to it at all. It's not... I'm not criticizing people who want that. I just... I don't get it. So maybe someone should just DM me and tell me why why I'm wrong. But, um... The big, the big picture, like... I don't think that the lack of compete has been a, a glaring issue until this Florida game. Like, maybe a couple stretches where I thought they were demoralized. I think that makes sense, considering how much losing they've done. And I think when you're the coach of a losing team... A big part of your job is just to kind of keep guys in it, like keep them mentally in it, keep them on their toes, keep them going so that so that things don't spiral out of control. This Florida game was the first time I thought they did they just didn't have it at all. Maybe maybe that will be we'll look back on it as kind of the the canary in the coal mine. Until it happens more often, I would be a little bit reticent to say that compete has been a big issue just from where I've sat. Um, but you know, to go back to Prashant's point. I don't think that's the only job of a coach either. I I just don't know how to I you know you know full disclosure I don't know how to evaluate systems really. So I would probably be pretty inadequate at giving that perspective from it. Um, yeah, I mean it's 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 a it's a tough it's a tough question because I think everyone is frustrated right at the end of the day that your results are just not where you want them to be, and it's just hard to pin down why that is and who should really be the scapegoat for that. Yeah, no, like, I'm not saying, like, I could for sure see that, you know, if, if things are this bad and they stay this bad, like, of course something would have to happen. Like, you can't lose by four goals every night, you know? Like, that's not sustainable. That You don't want your young players going through that. I don't necessarily think that's what will happen, but it could. And if it does, like, then yeah, like, that's that's probably the deal. Um, but like, I don't think that's necessarily even what Lars's question is, right? It's like, what, what falls on him, what doesn't, and how viable would firing him and giving the rest of the season to Bilesma be? I don't think Bilesma's the answer. Like, I don't necessarily know what the answer behind the bench is, but, but if you're going to make the change, you got to go outside the organization, right? You got to get a new voice. Cause that would be the whole point is this isn't working. And then you, if, if that is the answer, you can't just give it to the guy, right? You know, right. Who's been a part of the who's been a part of the current, the status quo, right? Like you'd have to go, you know, completely off of the, out of the organization to find that answer. I think if, if that's the route you go and maybe it will be. Um, but as for, as for what is or isn't on the coach. Yeah. I think, I think uh, competitiveness does ultimately come back to the coach. The players are the ones who are highly paid and have to bring it, but the job of a coach in a rebuild other than developing the young players is making sure that guys are in it every night because you know it's going to get bad at various points. And there were times last year where I thought he did a good job of that. And uh, this is a big test early in this year. So if, if they fail it and if, if things really spiral, um, this could become a very central question to what the Red Wings have this year uh, and going forward. I think that's all I've got on that. Is there anything else you want to talk about before we let people go? No, I mean, I think you summed that up pretty well, and I think it's probably a topic we're going to keep touching on as as the season goes on, depending on how the wings look. Yep, I would tend to agree. Uh, Busy week this week. They got Nashville Monday night, the Rangers on Wednesday. That's in New York, so you can guarantee... National TV game right there, Red Wings, Rangers. Is it really? 
It it is on NBC Wednesday Night Rivalry. That is an <laughs> awful game to have on national TV. I am sorry to the rest of America, but it is on national TV. And it's at Madison Square Garden, so Jimmy Howard will have a good game. Uh, oh yeah. <laughs> then they're going to get Boston and Vegas at home. Would not expect those to go well. Those are two of the best teams in the league. Like this, this might be a, a, a an exceptionally tough week. And then things will probably get. Uh, well, they could get either either better or a lot worse. They're going out west after that. So it's Anaheim, Los Angeles, San Jose. Those are all teams the Red Wings can beat. Uh, at least how they're playing right now. But then you got the out west factor. I don't know, man. It's it's gonna, and then Ottawa and then Columbus and then New Jersey. So so there is maybe some winnable games on the horizon, but. They gotta re- they gotta figure out themselves first, and I think that's what we've what we've come down to on uh, on this show. The Red Wings are like like somebody after a breakup. They gotta work on themselves. So <laughs> that's uh, that's where they're at, and we will be here to uh, to guide you through it. Thank you guys so much as always for the questions for listening. If you want to subscribe to the Athletic and get our midweek episodes, you can do that at theathletic.com/slash/wings for breakfast, and we will definitely talk to you then.